You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Yes, we see. Well, I get to uh, I get to do a lot of weddings. Um, I think it's kind of just the nature of being a college pastor. Uh, people go to college; they meet uh, a special someone. And uh, then they say, hey, you know, I dig you. You dig me. Let's make this official. And uh, purchase a rock or a little pebble, you know. And, uh, and then they get, they, get, uh, they get married. And so um, I get to do quite a few weddings. And uh, a couple of summers ago, I got to do the wedding of actually not, uh, not one of y'all, not one of uh, my students, but one of my fraternity brothers. Um, and he, uh, he lives in Arkansas. And so you know, I don't know how much you know about like weddings and all that stuff, but I have to be ordained or at least licensed to be able to officially do a wedding and actually count um, here in the state of Texas. And that's pretty much the case uh, across the country. You have to be like licensed in that state um, or ordained. And so I'm licensed and ordained in the state of Texas, uh, but uh, not in the state of Arkansas, which is where this wedding was going to be. So in order to do the wedding in Arkansas, I had to send in some paperwork, basically just the way they get money from you. I had to send in some paperwork to, this, to, to Arkansas and, uh, and say, hey, I'm doing this wedding, this date, in this county. Um, can you make me official in the state of Arkansas? So I sent in my paperwork ahead of time with like $15 or $5, whatever it was. It's cheap. It's Arkansas. So. Um, and, uh, and I sent it in plenty of time. And it gets to be like two weeks out from the wedding. And they're supposed to mail me something back that you know, like says something, you know, you're official, you can do this wedding, it'll count. But I never got anything back in the mail. So I called them. Um, and, and, and who I'm calling was uh, the, uh, basically the, the, the JP, the Justice of the Peace, thank you, brain fart, and, uh, in, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, okay, if you know where that is. That is. So I'm calling them saying, hey, uh, did you get my stuff? Uh, are you going to send it back? All that good stuff. And they're saying, we, we never got your information, but maybe it'll come, come in the mail tomorrow, so call us back tomorrow, and uh, we'll, we'll look in the mail, see if we get it from you then. And so I call them back the next day. They never got anything. They said, well, the mail sometimes is slow getting here. Uh, of course, Arkansas. And so uh, they said, maybe just call back next week. And I'm like, well, next week is the wedding. Like, next Friday is the wedding. They said, well, call back on Monday. Uh, they said that I didn't think about the fact that Monday was Memorial Day, so I had to call back on Tuesday. And so now we're just a few days out from the wedding. And so I call back on Tuesday, and they're like, yeah, we still haven't gotten anything in the mail. And so I'm, 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 I'm sitting there here in Dallas, Denton, whatever, uh, saying, okay, well, what do I do? Because I'm doing this wedding on Friday. I need to be official by Friday so I can do the wedding. Um, do I need to mail something else? You know, do I need to fax something? They said, well, we can't take a fax. It has to be in the mail. And, uh, and, and they said, just wait one more day. Maybe it'll come in the, in the mail tomorrow. So I call Wednesday, nothing. So Wednesday, they're like, well, can you just come up? you know, sometime today and uh, hand us your stuff. And I'm like, ma'am, I'm in Dallas, Texas. I can't just drive up and I have work and all this stuff. And she was like, well, just come up on Friday and we'll do it Friday. And I'm like, I I really don't want to leave it till Friday because what if something goes wrong, then I can't do these people's wedding. And she said, well, your only option at this point, because now it's like Wednesday, your only option at this point is to call us tomorrow, see if your stuff comes in tomorrow, which at this point I'm thinking it's not coming in, uh, or you can drive up Friday. And so I, uh, I, I decided I'll just drive up Friday and handle it all in person. That was really my only option. So I, I, I'm driving up Friday, and I'm calling them Friday as I'm driving up, thinking maybe it came in the mail today. I call them. The whole day I'm getting a busy signal. This is the first time this has happened uh, in all of this long process of trying to connect with them. All day I'm getting a busy signal, and it wouldn't even go to a voicemail. So I'm thinking, okay, something is up. 
And so I drive all the way to Hot Springs. I get there about 3.30, so their office is supposed to close at 5. I'm there an hour and a half before the office closes. And then, of course, I have to drive um, like another 45 minutes from there for the rehearsal dinner later that night. Um, I get to the courthouse in Hot Springs, and I walk up to the courthouse, and uh, on the door, there is a, like, there's nobody in the parking lot. Uh, there's a little scribbled piece of notebook paper taped to the door in, in handwriting. It just says, the power went out this morning, so we decided to close for the day. And uh, so I'm thinking, well, that's, that kind of stinks. Because uh, I don't know, I mean, there's no other option for me as far as getting you know, approved to do this wedding. And it has to be done before the wedding. It can't be done after the wedding. And the wedding was that Saturday. So uh, I'm like, well, what do I do? So across the street was the police department. So I'm thinking, well, I don't know. I'll just go over to the police department and see if they can help me. So I go over to the police department, Hot Springs Police Department. And I walk in to the front desk. There's a sweet lady there. And I said, hey, here's what's going on. I explained everything I just explained to you. Um, and I was like, uh, you know, what do I do? And she looks at me with this, like, bug eyes. And she goes, oh, that's not good. Um, <laughs> And so I was like, well, can you help me? I mean, can you call somebody? Like, I have drove all the way up here early for this, and I've been in contact with them and all this stuff. And she goes, um, I, let, me, let me see what I can do. So she starts trying to call some people, can't get a hold of anybody. And so she goes back, um, like, into the hallway of the police department, and she comes back with the police chief of Hot Springs, Arkansas. And he's freaking out. He's like, dude, we got to figure this out so you can do this wedding. So the police chief of Hot Springs, Arkansas is now calling people, trying to figure stuff out. He can't get a hold of anybody either. Um, and so finally they say, okay, here's what we need you to do. Just uh, give us a copy of your ordination certificate, because that's what I had to send in in the first place. And so they said, give us a copy of ordination certificate. Give us another check for whatever it was, 10 bucks. We'll, stamp, we'll date stamp it. And the police chief signed it. And he's like, we'll give this to them on Monday, and hopefully they'll accept it as if you gave it to them before the wedding. And I said, well... What happens if they don't accept it? And he was like, well, I mean, worst case scenario, which this was a pretty bad scenario. Uh, the wedding just wouldn't count, and they would have to come back after the honeymoon and pay like 70 bucks to get the JP to uh, perform their ceremony for them uh, again behind closed doors. So um, I, I'm thinking, okay, what do I do? Like, do I say anything to the groom and the bride, or do I just kind of go with it? I called uh, my frat brother, and I was like, hey, man. Uh, and I kind of felt him out, see where he was at, you know. Because, uh, you know, weddings can be kind of stressful. And, and I was like, hey, so how are you doing? And he's like, man, I'm, I'm good. And I was like, all right, good. Let me, uh, let me talk to you about something here. Uh, and I said, so, yeah, I didn't get my, you know, official licensing for the state of Arkansas. So this wedding this weekend is not going to be official. And he goes, oh, uh, yeah, that's not good. Um, and he said, okay, well, let's just not tell Jody, which is his bride. He's like, let's just not tell, let's just not tell Jody. And we'll deal with it later. <laughs> and I was like, all right, cool. So uh, we go to the rehearsal that night. And uh, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm feeling worse and worse as I see where they're having this wedding. Like, they have just really gone all out for this wedding. It's, it's one of those wedding chapels you've probably, you know, you girls who are already, like, searching for your wedding chapel. You know, you've been doing it for, like, 20 years. Um, it's, uh, it's one of those wedding chapels up in Arkansas. It's one of the most popular places to get married in the country um, it's one of those big glass wedding chapels with like wood beams and it's like in the middle of a forest. And anyways, uh, hot springs, Arkansas, if you want to look it up. Um, but I get there and I'm, I'm, I'm just feeling worse and worse. They've gone all out for this wedding. So like, I can't even make eye contact with the families or Jody, the bride. Um, cause I just feel like I'm going to, you know, 
give in and break. So we go through the whole rehearsal. We don't say anything to, uh, uh, to Jody. And then comes wedding day, and we do the whole wedding. And uh, we get to the part of, you know, at the end of the wedding, I'm supposed to say, well, by the power vested in me, by God, and by the state of uh, Arkansas. I, was, I literally, no joke, I'm like, by the power vested in me, uh, by God, and by the state of Arkansas. Uh, <laughs> and I did not make eye contact with anybody at this point. Because I didn't want to lie in the middle of the ceremony. Um, I now pronounce you sort of man and wife. <laughs> and uh, you can kiss your bride-ish. Uh, and so, you know, they finish the wedding, go to the reception, all that good stuff. And uh, so at the reception, uh, uh, Skyler, the groom, he pulls me over and he's like, hey, I think we should tell Jody now. And I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> like, everything's going great, man. And uh, so he pulls Jody over and... Um, Man, I don't know what was going on with her, but we were like, yeah, so I don't think what happened was like even real just now. And she goes, whatever. Uh, and <laughs> so she just goes back to uh, dancing, and I was like, sweet. So uh, um, now to make this story a little bit more just ridiculous, um, I'm driving home Monday, and, uh, and I call the, the courthouse again, and I'm like, so, hey, did y'all get this stuff from the police department? Uh, did you ever get my stuff from the mail? And this lady goes, um, no, we didn't, uh, but let me, let, me, uh, let me talk to somebody else real quick. So she goes, to get, goes and gets somebody else, and somebody else gets on the phone, and she goes, oh, are you, are you the guy that's been calling us the past two weeks? I was like, uh, yeah. And um, she goes, yeah, we had your stuff the whole time. The wedding was fine. Uh, so it all counted and everything. So I called Skyler and was like, dude, you're actually married. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I share that to, to get to saying this. Like, I was, I was, at least I thought, I was powerless to really perform that wedding uh, without the license. I mean, that entire wedding, it didn't matter how pretty it was, didn't matter how, like, crisp the whole ceremony went. Um, it really didn't mean anything if I didn't have the license. I was powerless to perform that wedding without a license. And here's why I share the story. We are powerless without the presence of God. We are powerless without the presence of God. If we don't have him, we don't have anything. It doesn't matter how awesome Tuesday night might feel. It doesn't matter how crisp it might go. If we don't have the presence of God, this moment is completely void of power. It doesn't matter how you know, many Bible studies you go to. It doesn't matter how often you go to church and, 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 and what books you're reading and how often you read your Bible and all this stuff. If you don't have the presence of God in your life, you are powerless. And what we're going to see tonight, at least the first part of tonight, is Israel needed to realize that. Like we're studying Exodus. And this is the story of Israel being set free from Egypt. And they needed to realize in this moment, Exodus 33, that apart from the presence of God, they were powerless. And we need to realize the same thing tonight. So Exodus chapter 33, verse, uh, verse 1. Listen to what it says. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So just a quick recap here. They were set free from Egypt because they'd been slaves there for years. Like all they had ever known was slavery. They cry out to God. God in his graciousness, loving mercy for the Israelites sets them free through a whole series of events. They, uh, they, they end up crossing this, what we're identifying as the Red Sea, whether it was the Red Sea or another big body of water, whatever it was, they cross it in a miraculous way and they end up in the desert of Sinai, camped out at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And this is where they've been now for a while. And, and 
And now God is saying, okay, I want you to pack up your things. I want you to leave, and I want you to go to the land that I promised you. I mean, if you go all the way back to Genesis, uh, in Genesis, when God calls out Abram, whose name changed to Abraham, he tells Abraham, look, I'm going to give you this land. And he, and he shows Abraham the land that he was going to give him. He said, I'm going to give you this land. I'm not giving it to you yet, but I'm eventually going to give it to you. And God, over and over, he reaffirms this promise. He continues to confirm this promise to the people. And again, here he says, all right, now it's time to go. Like, don't stay here at Sinai because this isn't where I've promised you to have. This isn't the land I've promised to you. It's time to pack up and go to the promised land. And so he says, leave Sinai, leave the mountain which you've been camped out at for a while now. In verse 2 it says, I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A bunch of weird names. But these are all people that had already settled in the land that they were heading towards. Which, I mean, just to put some context on this, what the Israelites are thinking as God says this. He's saying, you're going to go to this land that's already inhabited by the Canaanites. Now all he had to say was the Canaanites. Because news, like rumors, word had spread about the Canaanites to the Israelites. They knew that the Canaanites were a massive people with a massive army and a lot of power. And Israel, though there were at least a million of them, they were not like this powerhouse nation. They were this nomad nation. Remember, they'd they'd been in slavery their whole lives. They didn't have all this powerful stuff, this powerful army, this powerful training of warfare. No, they had none of that. The only reason they were able to get out of Egypt alive is because of God. And so he's saying, all right, I want you to go to this land that's occupied by the Canaanites. That's all he had to say for the Israelites to think, okay, we are in trouble unless God does something crazy on our behalf. But he didn't stop with the Canaanites. He goes on to say, okay, the Canaanites live there, the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. All these people are there, and he's saying, I'm going to give you that land. Now they know that these people aren't just going to be like, oh, this is yours? Cool, here you go, and then like leave the land. They know that this means war, this means battle. But they also know that they were not capable in themselves of defeating those people. And so as they hear that, they're thinking what they've experienced so far with God coming with them and and destroying these people as they went into the land. But listen to what he says next. So after he says, I'll send an angel before you and will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, describing just how awesome this place is going to be. But, verse 3, I, I being God, Yahweh, this massive God, this powerful God, this unimaginably holy God that we've been studying the past few weeks, I, he says, will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And listen to, listen to their response, verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Now here's why it was a disastrous word, just what I was saying a second ago. They knew that for them to head towards this land that was occupied by these people, if God didn't go, they were going to die. So that's why it says when they heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And God tells Israel why he wasn't going to go with them. Why was it that that God wasn't going to go with Israel? Why was it that he wasn't going to send his presence with them? I mean, look at verse 3. It says, I won't go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Because of their sin, remember what had just happened last week. Because of their sin of 
idolatry and putting another God before them, turning their back on God because of their sin, God wasn't going to go with them any further. Now, here's the question I want to start with tonight. What if God told you that he wasn't going to go with you any further? Like, what if God told you that he was going to withdraw from you his presence in your life? How would you respond? Better yet, let's, let's think of it this way. What if God actually did withdraw his presence from us? I mean, one, what would our response be? But let me just tell you where my mind goes as I'm studying this this week, thinking about this. And honestly, it's been hard to like figure out a way to communicate this and it all makes sense and, and, and for it to flow and all that good stuff. But let's just go here. What if God really did withdraw his presence from us? Like, would we even notice? And, and let, me, let me tell you why I ask, would we even notice? Like, would you even notice, would we even notice if God said right now, or actually just didn't even say, he just did, he withdrew his presence from us, from us as a body of believers trying to impact our campuses. What if he would withdrew his presence of us, from us? Would we even notice? I'm, I'm saying that, I'm asking that question because I fear that we wouldn't notice. I fear that we wouldn't notice because this whole time, I, I, I fear that we've been missing out on what he actually can do among us. I mean, you look at Scripture, flipping to the New Testament now, like God has promised so much for his church today. God has promised so much for us as believers today. I mean, let's just start with John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus is talking. God, in the form of man, is talking. And listen to what he says. This is towards the end of his ministry. He says, truly, truly. In other words, I promise you, listen to what I'm about to say. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. I mean, hear what he's saying. Jesus is saying, all right, whoever believes in me will do the types of things that I've been doing. Think about the types of stuff Jesus had done up to that point. I mean, he had done some crazy junk. He had healed people. He had fed thousands of people with just like nothing. He had raised people from the dead. He had driven out demons from people. He had done things that nobody else had ever done before. He had done things that nobody else had ever seen before. And he's saying, the people who believe in me are going to do that kind of stuff. Not only that, they're going to do greater things than that. And he gives the reason why. He says, because I'm going to the Father, which I'll explain that in a minute. God has promised so much for the church today. Ephesians 3.20, another example. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. I mean, think about the wordage in that. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more. Like there's no measurement for it. There's no way to calculate what he is capable of doing. And he says, who's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. So think of the greatest thing you've asked and he can do incalcul incalculably, is that a word? More, immeasurable, we'll stick with the Bible, immeasurably more than that. I mean, think of the craziest thing you've ever thought of, like your biggest 
dream, and, and I want to be careful what I'm saying here. This isn't like, oh, I dream of having this massive, like, 8 billion square foot mansion and, like, Maseratis on Maseratis on Maseratis for days. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, okay, in, in conjunction with God's mission and what he wants to accomplish on earth, like if the, the most, like, imaginative thing we could ever dream up in our lives, he can do immeasurably more than that. Now, I hear these texts and just the, the powerful promise that God's making about his church that is us now. And I can't help but think, okay, based on these scriptures, we've got to be totally missing out. Based on these scriptures, we, we are settling for so much less than what he has promised and offered. And let me tell you why I think that is. You look at Exodus 33, verse 5, look at Israel's situation. says, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel. He's explaining why he's going to withdraw his presence. Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. And it goes back to the reality of how holy God is. He's so much more holy than we could ever imagine him being. I mean, it doesn't matter how good you think you are. You cannot stand and live in God's presence. He would consume you, like incinerate you. You would not exist. Boom. No trace of you left. And he says, because they were a stiff-necked people, the image there is um, of like oxen or, or horses or mules and, and trying to direct them where to go, and they're stiff-necked. They're like, no, nah, I don't want to go that way. You're like, no, I want you to go that way. So you're trying to pull on the reins or whichever way you'd pull on the reins. I'm not a cowboy. Uh, pull on the reins. And, uh, and then like, they're like, no, nah, I don't want to go that way. I'm going this way. They got the stiff neck. Um, it, the image that I get in my mind, I don't know how many of you grew up in the country. Those of you who didn't, like me, um, I'll just kind of, I don't know, put this in a picture or way I saw this happen. Um, so I've, I've, I've talked about taking students different places in the world. Took some students to... Uh, to uh, uh, Southeast Asia like five, six years ago, and um, we actually used elephants at one point to get to where we were going, and we're sitting on this elephant, and, and they, uh, they told us, look, when you want the elephant to turn, just like kick it in the side of its, in the side of its head, and I'm like, okay, uh, that sounds kind of mean, but cool, and so, uh, yeah, you know, at first you're like trying to be nice to it, like, oh, come on, buddy, you know, no, you got to like, bam, kick it in the side of its head to get it to do its thing. Well, there's one elephant. It wasn't mine. It was two elephants back from me, two of my, my, my students on that elephant. It didn't want to do it. It was so hungry. All of its, all, his whole mind, or her whole mind, I didn't check, but he or his, her whole mind was on food. And so uh, it wasn't thinking about anything else but getting food. And elephants, I guess they eat like, like bushes and trees and stuff. And so we're walking down this path and they're trying to kick it to go where they want it to go, but it's just going off the path and literally disappearing into the bushes. These guys, these poor guys are sitting on this basket on top of it. And it's like, these bushes are taking them out as they go in and they would completely disappear. And then this elephant, just imagine this big old elephant, butt backing out of the bushes and pulling like this tree out with it. And they're covered in leaves and junk. And they're just so mad. Like, why did we get this stinking elephant? Um, but that's a stiff-necked elephant. Like, like the picture that God is saying is, I'm trying to direct you on where to go. I'm trying to kick you in the ear that, graciously, and you're not going where I want you to go. You're so fixated on what you want. You're so fixated on the, on the hunger that your stomach has, both literally and metaphorically speaking there, that you are being pulled off to the side to go try to feed your hunger with things that you think will satisfy you, even though they really won't. And, and so you're disobeying me. You're not going where, where you're supposed to go. And he says, this is why I'm going to withdraw my presence. You're stiff-necked. 
Um, I'll, I'll give you the New Testament or one of the New Testament um, parallels of that. First Thessalonians chapter four, which if you can flip there real quick. First, First Thessalonians chapter four, verse beginning in verse three. <clears throat> Paul writes. He says, "This is the will of God, your sanctification." That's a big word there, sanctification. Um, basically, when you put your faith in Christ, you're justified. That's justification. Like because of Jesus, he justifies you before God. But then you enter into the sanctification process. So you're justified before God. That salvation is complete. But now you enter into a process of God through the Holy Spirit changing you on the inside. And turning you into his follower. Turning you into somebody who wants what he wants and does what he does. So verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your transformation into, into somebody like Christ. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And listen to verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I mean, essentially what we're seeing, Paul says the same thing that was happening in Exodus. Like, they had been set free from Egypt. They had been saved from Egypt. And though you may, through faith in Christ, have been saved from your sin, you can still, choosing to continue to live in sin, push away the Holy Spirit whom God wants to fill your life with. And so that's what takes me back to the question of, okay, based on what we see in Scripture and the powerful promises that God makes about the church, like the church, which is us, being able to do things for him that are beyond our imagination, do things like what he did, beyond even what he did. In fact, you go back to uh, John 14, 12, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. What that means is Jesus had been promising this whole time when he goes to the Father, Jesus died, rose from the dead, spent 40, 40 days on earth, then he ascended into heaven, he went to the Father. But after going to the Father, he would send who? The Holy Spirit. And so he's saying, you're going to be able to do these things because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 3.20, now to him, God, who's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. What is, who is his power that's at work within us? Starts with an H, ends in Oli, starts with an S, ends in Pirit. Holy Spirit, thank you so much. Holy Spirit. I need you to listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 8. Where he says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so it goes back to that question, okay, so if God did withdraw his presence from us, would we even notice? 
And, and I fear, I fear that we wouldn't notice because I fear that we're already missing out on so much. I fear that we've already settled for so much less. I mean, it's kind of like, um, never mind, that's a distraction. The people, the, the people knew, the Israelites, they knew that apart from God's presence, they would be powerless. And my prayer tonight is that we would see that too, that we would realize that apart from God's presence, we are powerless. Um, we'll get a little bit more into that next week as we close the series, but I want to go back to verse 1 and kind of hang there for the rest of the night. Chapter 33, verse 1 of Exodus. It said, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people, from, or the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. Um, that word depart and, and go up from here really struck me this week as I was studying. And I think, it, I think it's really fitting for where we are as a ministry, where many of you are right now in your life, and also where Israel was. I, I mean, consider how long Israel had been at Mount Sinai. They, they, based on other texts in Scripture, we know that Israel was at Mount Sinai for almost a year. 11 to 12 months. So they had been camped out here for a long time. And so just think about that. Like, the longer you are in a place, the more comfortable you get there. And so they had not just like set up their tents. You know, when, if you've ever moved, like you move into a house and it takes a while for you to unpack all the boxes. It takes a few months. Um, some of you still haven't unpacked the boxes. You're like living out of the boxes. I don't know. But like at this point, they had unpacked all the boxes. They'd settled in. They'd gotten comfortable. And then with that, they had, ex- I mean, think of what they'd experienced at Mount Sinai. Like they had experienced God come down on the mountain and they had seen some incredible things. I mean, God coming on Mount Sinai, which they're camped below or camped just a little ways away from, and he consumes the mountain with fire and it's so powerful that it caused the ground to shake. Remember a few weeks ago, the the sermon called Tremble? Like when God came on the mountain, it was so powerful, it was so huge, and they saw his holiness revealed through that moment that they literally trembled in fear and backed up. I mean, think about what they'd experienced and, and, and the fact that they'd been there for almost a year, they, they began to get comfortable. So you can only imagine how they felt when God says, okay, now it's time to go. I mean, imagine what they're thinking. Yes, they had to have been excited about the, the idea of this promised land flowing with milk and honey, but at the same time, like that was still just way out there, something they couldn't wrap their mind around, something they, they couldn't really sink their teeth into. It was just kind of a, a thing out there. Yet right here, they had found comfort. Right here, they'd been settled in. And so they had to have been afraid to some extent of, of moving out. Also knowing that these lands that they're supposedly going to are already occupied by these massive nations with massive armies. There had to have been this, this fear of leaving their comfort, this fear of walking into the unknown when God says, depart, leave here. So I want to hang here for the rest of the night because um, of a few reasons. First reason is this. I want to speak to the graduating seniors in the room. If you're a graduating senior, like you're graduating uh, this semester, I want, I want to see your hands. Wow, a lot of you. Um, man, congratulations. That's awesome. Good luck in the real world. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Listen to what I'm about to say. This is huge. Um, because I know some of you are thinking, oh, crud, it's the real world. Listen, to the graduating seniors, you have been camped out at Mount Sinai now for four years or more. (laughs) That joke never gets old. (laughs) Um, You've been camped out at at Mount Sinai now for 
for a while. And, and many of you have experienced God in some incredible ways here, like in Denton, at UNT, T-Dub, um, and, and even through this ministry in, in your church. But now God is leading you into the new phase of the journey. And essentially what he's saying to you is, all right, depart. Get up, it's time to go. And, and, and for some of you, like, it's sooner than what you would like it to be. And it's, it's sooner than what you'd like it to be because it's, it's scary to move on or it's scary to move away from a place where you've experienced God in such a powerful way. It's scary to move away from a place that's become comfortable to you. And just a little bit of my story, like, College, I loved college. Not so much like the going to class part, but I loved college, everything else about it. And, uh, man, God really got a hold of my heart in college. If you haven't heard my testimony before, I won't share it tonight, but God got a hold of my heart in college and just totally changed my life. And, and I had some strong relationships built in college. And I remember when it, like, reality set in that I was graduating and I was leaving Arkadelphia, Arkansas, and not going to be living there anymore. Um, and, and leaving these people and leaving this environment, um, it, was, it was terrifying, one, but it was just sad. I didn't want to leave. In fact, I remember um, my, my, my three roommates, we lived together for four years in college in the freshman dorms. We didn't move at all in college. It's uh, <laughs> another story. Um, but I remember uh, when, because we didn't move in college, we got to know our dorm director very well, and so... Uh, we just said, hey, like after the, there was the move out date, and we we're like, hey, can we like stay one extra night? And uh, he was like, yeah, sure, that's fine. Well, I won't tell anybody. So everybody else moves out. The dorm's completely empty except for us. We stayed one extra night. And it was the most like ridiculous whatever, if y'all, if there's like video of it. I mean, we're just sitting there in this room, four dudes, and just reminiscing, you know, on the past four years of chaos and fun and a little bit of class here and there. Uh, it was kind of like, if you've ever watched, like, I don't know, Friends, or for me, I remember the last episode of Saved by the Bell, um, but, you know, this long-standing TV series, and it comes to the very final episode of this, of the, not just the season, but the series, and they're sitting in the room, having those final conversations, and then there's, like, one person left, and they walk out and turn the light off, and that's how it ends. Like, that's, that's what it was like. It was so sad. And, um... And then I remember going the, the day that I left, going to find my college pastor who, man, the Lord had just used him in an incredible way, still is in my life. And, uh, and I remember going to find him and I was like, you know, be strong. Uh, and, and I remember walking up to him and uh, we both just uh, lost it. Um, and uh, so, you know, we had a good manly cry, uh, embraced in each other's arms. Um, and I remember afterwards, we kind of backed away and we're like, God, you look like an idiot, you know, and walked away. But uh, Man, it was just so sad to leave, and, and it, was, it was scary to leave. It was terrifying to leave. The reality is it's, it's a scary thing to move on from a place where you've experienced God in such, a powerful play, uh, in, a, in such a powerful way. It's scary to move on from a place that has become so comfortable to you, where you've gotten so settled into. And, and that's similar to what Israel's facing here, which, which I'm going to come back to that in a second. Another, another I think, comparable situation is our, our ministry as a whole um, our ministry as a whole, we've, we've kind of been camped out at our Mount Sinai now for a while. Um, and it hasn't just been one year like Israel. And I got here October 2010, and we made you know, some directional changes in, in, in December of 2010. And so for the past four years, a little over four years now, we've kind of been camped out at our Mount Sinai. And, and it's been awesome to see 
what the Lord has done in the past four years. Uh, most of you haven't been around that long, uh, but it, it's, it's been incredible. Like, you know, for those who, who don't know, um, the Lord has, has just completely changed this ministry in a lot of ways. Overflow, um, it used to be like the first five rows of this middle section. That was it. It was really awkward to meet in here, actually. Um, about 50 students, 40 to 55 students. And, um, and that's completely changed. And this is springtime, which, you know, college students, like I said last week, check out in the springtime. Fall, it's, you know, even crazier than this. The Lord has completely changed the ministry in that regard. Um, over the past four years, uh, God has done some incredible things in people's hearts. We've, we've seen, um, I think, pretty well over 100 students get baptized. Many of them were n- new believers uh, when we baptized them, which is just crazy. That's, that's crazy. That's incredible. Um, Communities, you know, we, we have communities now. I think this year we had like 25 communities. When we started, we had like seven or eight. Um, Sunday morning, there was like, there was nothing. Um, there were like eight or 10 students coming on Sunday morning. That's changed. Now we have like 12, 11 or 12 um, college life groups, Bible studies. Um, we have uh, grown as a ministry in diversity, which has been amazing. Now we still got a long way to go, but the diversity of our ministry is more and more reflecting the diversity of the population of college students in Denton, which is a huge prayer for us. And that's not just racial diversity, um, that's socioeconomic diversity, throw a big word at you. Like that's majors, like diversity in majors, diversity as far as we got athletes, we got like people who are definitely not athletes. Uh, I wasn't pointing over there for a reason. Um, But we, uh, I mean, we've got just, we're just diverse. Like we and, and we're growing. It's, it's been incredible to see God bring people from totally different backgrounds together. We got students who are, who are starting to see like what God's doing around the world. We're sending students this next fall, students who've gone through this ministry. God has impressed on their hearts to leave Denton, not just Denton, leave America. We're going to be seeing some of our students go to Malaysia for uh, like long term, um, go to uh, China long term, go to Brazil long term. We're seeing God begin to move in people's hearts that way. There's incredible things that are happening, but now it's time for us to depart. It's time for us to, to leave Mount Sinai and, and begin the next phase of the journey. And here's what I mean by that. The Lord, I believe, is calling us to change a lot of stuff about our ministry. Um, we had a meeting this past Sunday night with uh, just our, our current leadership, adults and students, and, and shared kind of the new vision. And I won't go into the whole detail of what it's going to look like, but next year this ministry is going to look a lot different. Um, and, and one of the biggest things is Sundays are going to look completely different. We're completely scrapping life groups. Um, if you've been involved in a life group, those are not going to exist um, next year. And, and, and we're going to do something different that I think is going to enable us to do a much better job of, of fulfilling our calling in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Um, we are going to do the best that we can to be obedient with where God's leading us, even though it might be scary. It is scary. It is risky. But God is very clearly saying, hey, it's time to get up and, and go. Leave this part of the journey. Begin this phase of the journey. The other big thing that you're going to see differently is, is um, one of our biggest desires is, is for there to be a culture of discipleship in this ministry. And as I say discipleship, some of you are like, oh, I don't even know what that word means. Um, never experienced it, never done it. Um, and, and that's on me. As your leader, that's on me. Um, that you don't know what that means yet, that that's not a part of our culture yet. But next year, our desire is to train up men and women from our church to begin discipling as many college students as possible. We're setting a goal, and honestly, it's a very low goal of having 100 students being discipled by men and women in our church in the fall. I think that's a low, low, low goal. 
Um, But it's time for us to, as a ministry, depart and go up to the next part of the journey. And for some of you who've been involved in this for a while or even just this year, that might be kind of scary for you. You might not like that because um, you've settled in and you've kind of found your place and you like it. It's scary to move on from a place where we've experienced God in such a powerful way. But when God says go, we've got to listen. And, and I, I realize as I'm talking, I'm kind of speaking to two very specific things, ministry-wide and then also graduating seniors. But the reality is, many of you in this room, you're camped out at a Mount Sinai. And God is saying to you, it's time to depart. Get up and leave. Maybe he's calling you uh, to leave your old lifestyle. Maybe he's calling you to leave a relationship. Maybe he's calling you to leave Denton. I don't know. But whatever your situation is, you are in a moment of truth. We are in a moment of truth. And, and, and here's what it is. Are we going to obey? Are you going to obey? Are you going to trust? I mean, is this faith that you claim to have, is it real? It's scary to move because oftentimes it's so much easier to stand still. But in standing still, we often miss out on realizing what God has promised to us. And think about what God had promised to to the Israelites. This land flowing with milk and honey, better than anything they had ever experienced before. If they chose to stay at Sinai, they would never get to experience what was coming. And think about what he's promised you in Scripture. One of my favorite promises that I hold on to hardcore, and I can tell you as a testimony, just from my personal experience of walking with the Lord, this is stinking true. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first his, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now that falls in a very important context. All these things, that's not like whatever you dream up, those Maseratis for days, that's not that. It is simply your, your basic needs, like, He knows your needs. And if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, those needs will be met. And here's what he means, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Putting number one, God's mission. Understanding that he has put you on this planet not to do your own thing. He's put you on this planet to give your life to following him and doing whatever you can to be a part of and, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for? And uh, help him accomplish his mission on earth. Like the American dream says completely different, and that's, that's the worldview you've been brought up with. Even if you grew up in the church, I'm just telling you, that's the worldview you've been brought up with. Pursue the American dream. Pursue what makes you happy. But that's not why God created you. God created you to find the most joy in serving him, seeking first his kingdom, putting his mission first in your life. He says seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You know what that means? Is pursuing holiness. Like, we've seen a picture the past couple weeks of how unimaginably holy God is. We talked tonight about his will being for us to be sanctified. That's, that means his will is for us to be made righteous, made holy. And so when you put first in your life pursuing his mission and pursuing his holiness, then you know, because it's promised to you and God is yet to break a promise that I know of, you know that he will provide for you your needs. All these things shall be added to you is what he says. So it's scary to leave what you know. It's scary to leave what you're comfortable with. But when you understand the promises of God, when you see that, then then you have no other choice, really. Like logic says, to stay behind would be dumb. You have no other choice but to trust him and move forward. 
Oftentimes, God tells us to pack up and move because he wants to take us to a new place where we will experience him in some completely new ways. Now, go back to verse 1 again. The Lord says, depart, go up from here. Again, we know that Israel had been there for a long time. We know that they'd experienced some crazy stuff. And so we can imagine what they're feeling. Like, they're not necessarily wanting to leave. They're afraid to leave. They're nervous about leaving. But consider what else had just happened. I mean, just last week, we studied that they had completely turned their backs on God, built this golden calf, and started to worship the golden calf. Like, you go back to Exodus 20, where he lays out the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, no other gods before me. Commandment number two, no idols, or however to say, no carved images. They didn't, like, shoot for the low stuff. They just said, let's just go crazy. One and two, baby, we're going for you. Knock it out now. They did not hold anything back. It, I mean, think about this. Like, God had just set them free. God had just proven his mercy, his power, his love for them, his ability to do for them whatever he wanted to do for them. And then just like that, they're like, ah, let's build a little baby calf out of gold and worship that. They turn their back just like that on him. And so you can just imagine, imagine what they're thinking. As they realized how foolish they were, they, they got to be thinking, how in the world could they, as sinful as they were, move forward and continue to experience God like they had at Mount Sinai? I mean, think about this. Like God's saying, go. they got to be sitting there thinking, but how can I go after I just did that? I mean, it's one of those things where they just, they totally took God's presence for granted until now. Now, verse 4, they're mourning, weeping, because they realized they had taken it for granted, and it was too late. I can't believe I'm about to, count, to uh, quote Counting Crows. Uh, but it reminds me of a Counting Crows song. Um, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got until it's gone? Pave paradise, put up a parking lot. I can't believe I just quoted that. I, I've, I'll confess, I've seen Counting Crows before in concert with John Mayer, which is even worse. Um, first song, Counting Crows, their lead guy comes out and um, high as a kite. Uh, and the first song, he's just singing. I think he was making it up as he went. He's just singing about how high he was. He literally comes out, falls flat on the ground, rolls over, sings the whole song on his back while his little pit bulls running around on stage. It was bad. But uh, the, these lyrics to this song, I mean, as I'm, as I'm thinking about this message, uh, I, these lyrics came to, my, came to my mind. Don't it always go that you don't know what you got till it's gone? Pave paradise, put up a parking lot. Um, growing up in Mesquite uh, slash Garland area, um, we used to have Wet n' Wild. I don't know if you even know what that is. Okay, cool, you do. Uh, Pre-Hurricane Harbor days, and honestly, I think it's better than Hurricane Harbor, but we had Wet n' Wild right off 635, right off the highway, and for some reason, uh, I don't remember all the reasons, but the city didn't like having Wet n' Wild there. They, I don't think they liked all the traffic that it brought in, and so they voted to get rid of Wet n' Wild, but the, the city also promised that they wouldn't make it a parking lot. Um, well, now, if you drive down 635, um, it is a massive CarMax uh, parking lot with a bunch of cars in it. And uh, it went from being this incredibly awesome, wet and wild, like, water park to now it's literally a parking lot. And I, 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 I picture that when I think about the song from Counting Crows. And I picture that when I think about what happens to Israel. They had it made. They had God. They had God's presence. And they said, nah, let's take a golden calf instead. That makes a lot of sense. No. They completely lost sight of what they had. And it... It wasn't until it was like past it all happened and almost too late that they realized what they had given up for a stinking, lifeless golden calf. And I have no doubt that some of you right now, 
Some of you are thinking, dang, man, there's, there's, there's no way that I can continue to follow Jesus and experience his presence like I have before after what I did this week. Like some of you, you're struggling with, okay, I know what I just did this week. I know what I did last week or a few weeks ago. And you're, you're, you're carrying this guilt. You're carrying this weight. You're carrying this thing where literally you're like, I cannot believe I traded paradise for a parking lot. How in the world can I follow the Lord from here? How in the world can I continue to experience him like I had before? Like, like maybe last week you were just so convicted. And in that moment you're like, all right, God, like I, this is it. Like I, I, I'm putting my faith there. I'm following you. Or maybe it was two weeks ago or maybe it was Sunday or maybe it was like months ago. But since then, like you have royally screwed up. Since then, you have just fallen straight backwards into the same old junk. And you're sitting here now, just like Israel was thinking, thinking, how in the world can I continue to follow Jesus? How can I continue to walk in his presence with all the junk that I have just done? Now, before I say anything else, not by raise of hands, but am I not striking a chord with some people in this room? I mean, I think it's just so incredible. One verse of scripture. Exodus 33.1. Exodus of all places. Like what's so amazing is, like here in God's word, in one verse, God, I believe, has pegged so many people in this room. And, and you got to hear what he says next, or hear, hear essentially what we observe next from the text. Israel's ability to move forward, continuing to follow Jesus, and continuing to experience God's presence was not at all based on their own faithfulness. I mean, if you look at what happens in the text, their ability to move forward and follow Jesus and experience his presence was not based on their own faithfulness, and it was not ruined by their unfaithfulness. Israel's ability to leave Sinai and continue experiencing God's presence was based completely on God's faithfulness, and the same is true for you as well. You can continue to move forward simply because God is faithful. You look at verse 12. It says, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may, that I may now know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you. God's now speaking. And he says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that, so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Like, is it not your presence with us that makes us a distinct people? In verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Let me ask you. Why did God relent? I mean, why did God seemingly change what he had originally said he was going to do? I mean, once again, like we saw last week, he relented because Moses interceded on their behalf. And remember what we saw last week as we close. We need a greater Moses. And in, in Jesus, we have that greater Moses. 
Hebrews 7.25, I read it last week. Um, ironically, the, my, my home group from this church, we studied it this week. I didn't know that was happening, but the Lord has just had this passage on my, on my mind all week. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he, being Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost, to completion, fully. He's able to save fully those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I said this last week, but our hope is in Jesus, not just because of what he did on the cross, but because of what he continues to do today. He's still interceding for you today. He always lives to intercede for us. And and what that means is he's constantly standing before God. Every time you're screwing up down here, every time I'm screwing up down here, he's standing before God, not pointing at your, your performance, saying, hey, he's trying hard, she's trying hard. No. Jesus is constantly standing before God, Interceding on your behalf, not pointing at your performance, but pointing at his performance on the cross, saying, hey, remember this. I've paid for what he's doing right now. I've paid for what she's doing right now. And so I don't know, I don't know where you're at this week, but here's the thing. Regardless of where you're at, regardless of what you're going through, this is what you need to hear. Um, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. What he did on the cross 2,000 years ago was enough to save you from your sin today. And, and what he continues to do today is enough to keep you safe from your destructive sin. Nothing else is enough. No one else is enough. Only Jesus is enough. Anything less than Jesus is not enough. And anything more than Jesus does not exist. Jesus is enough. And so as we close tonight, here's, here's all I'm asking. I'm asking you to either, one, realize that you absolutely need Jesus in order to be saved from your foolishness. I need Jesus to be saved from my foolishness. Or if you've already realized that, then my... My desire for you is to simply lean into the reality as you're reminded of the fact that Jesus is enough. And it's only because he stands to continually intercede before you that he is able to save you to the uttermost. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.